Every profession has a distribution of high points and low points. And as developers, I feel like we're kind of skewed that way. It seems like in a given day, we might have 10 to 15, maybe 20 or more low points. We're frustrated trying to figure something out. We just can't do it. Maybe we have a bad discussion with a client or a boss or a testy discussion with a coworker. But then all of a sudden, out of nowhere, we have the one or two high points. Maybe we've figured out a problem. Perhaps we've even shipped a bit of software or slayed a bug that has been plaguing us for a long, long time. That one high point, that one moment of clarity can absolutely drown out all the low points, not only for that day, but for the entire week. It's almost an addictive thing. And I think for a lot of developers, it's what keeps us in the game. What happens when you manage to hit a high point that is so high that you think about it for years? When you hit the home run, when you do something so good that either your boss promotes you, you get a massive bonus, or maybe the community that you work in recognizes you as awesome. It's fun to do good work, and it's fun to be recognized for doing good work, and it's triple fun to know that you inspire others. And that's my goal today with this developer's life. I want to be able to capture some stories about home runs from people that have hit some pretty big ones, because I think we all need some inspiration, and hearing these stories, well, can be inspirational, can push you to try something that maybe you haven't tried before, or maybe finish that project that you've had on the back burner. Or just to plain remind you that you do have the ability to hit one right out of the park, just like these guys that you're about to hear have done. So we have two storytellers today. Uh, the first one you will probably recognize if you are a web developer. The second one you may or may not recognize, but you surely have used the thing he created. So rather than lead off with a typical story as we do, I'm just going to jump right to it. This is some good stuff. But I will warn you straight up front. Our first storyteller uses some salty language. In fact, if there's little ears in the car with you, you might want to wait until those little ears are somewhere else because there is some rough language ahead. You have been warned. Rails actually started uh, before I even knew Ruby. I was doing various contract work in PHP. Uh, I had dabbled a little bit in, in Java, both in school and with, uh, with some work for a Danish company. But most of the stuff I was doing for myself, I was doing in PHP. Now, if you're a web developer, that voice should be fairly familiar. And you undoubtedly have heard of the framework Ruby on Rails. Now, if you're not a web developer, you don't know who this person is, well, let him introduce himself. My name is David Heinemeyer Hansen. I am the creator of Ruby on Rails and a partner at 37Signals. So David, or DHH, as he is known in the web development community, created quite a splash when he introduced Ruby on Rails. In fact, he was named the Google O'Reilly Hacker of the Year for 2005 at OzCon. And he was also named to Business 2.0's Top 50 People in Technology Who Matter. And David's a popular guy. And it all started with Ruby on Rails. And that's quite a splash. Where did this come from? Where does that kind of inspiration, where does that kind of home run get started? How do you make something like that? 
What I was finding was there was just a lot of similarities in all the PHP applications I was doing, things I would be doing over and over and over again. And uh, at that time, at least, uh, and to a large extent still, I wasn't in programming just to enjoy typing in code. I was in programming because I wanted programs, basically. So the easier I could get those programs, the better. And if there's something I just hate more than anything else, it's to redo work I've already done. And it felt like a lot of the development work I was doing in PHP was redoing work I had already done. And it just felt like somebody must have solved this problem. So I started looking around, and at that time, most of the interesting work in frameworks and so forth was going on in Java. Uh, I was reading uh, a bunch of books. Martin Fowler had his enterprise patent book, um, a bunch of other texts by uh, a variety of industry thinkers. And they were all writing and thinking about Java stuff. And I actually gave the Java stuff um, a try. Like I tried the, the struts at the time was, uh, was one of the big things and um, some of the other frameworks there and it just, it didn't feel right at all. Like at first I was excited about all the thought that had gone into it. Like the ivory tower construction was fascinating from afar. But then when you actually got close to it and actually had to do something with it, it just felt almost as wrong. It felt almost as wrong as when I was doing the PHP stuff. So in PHP, I was repeating myself, doing the same thing over and over again. And in Java, they had thought about all this stuff. They had tried to abstract it, but it still felt yucky just in its own way. The inspiration for a convention-based framework is there, but the tools aren't, at least in David's eyes. So what do you do? You got the inspiration. You just can't sit down and build it yet. So my first attempt at Rails was to try to do this in PHP. I built up a variety of frameworks. I had a object relational mapper. I had something uh, reminiscent of, of Action Controller. I think I actually called it Action Controller. And I tried to do all this stuff in PHP. And I got initially pretty excited about it. I thought that the stuff I'd cooked up was, was pretty neat. I even had a web interface for creating uh, new controllers and models, and, and I thought it was pretty snazzy, but the more I was working with it, the, the more it just felt I was fighting stuff. Like, PHP wasn't meant for this kind of abstraction. And then Basecamp rolled around. The project of Basecamp became uh, sort of my escape somehow. Basecamp is a project management slash collaboration website up at basecamphq.com. Actually, what Basecamp added was a blank slate. So Basecamp was like a white canvas where I could pick my own tools uh, completely free of any other constraints. Most of the previous work I had done came with mandated technology. We would like you to build a PHP application doing this. PHP was like in the project spec. Like, it wasn't open for choice. That's what they wanted. I was working as a contractor, so I was doing what they wanted. So it wasn't for me to choose. Basecamp was different. Basecamp was something I was doing, at least in part for me. I was still working as a contractor for 37 Signals, but by that time, I, I was calling the technical shots on that, in large parts because 
Jason didn't really care. Um, he was trusting me to to make the right decisions on on the tech side of things. So here was this opportunity to just try something new. Here comes this uh, Ruby language for me. I mean, of course, by then Ruby was already 10 years old almost. But I was learning about Ruby. I was learning about all these smart people who thought that Ruby was really the thing. They were picking Ruby. I was like, well, why wouldn't I pick it then? Like, there's all these smart people who think that that's the way to go. And uh, I looked at it a little bit, looked pretty damn interesting. And I just gave it a shot. It's was like, all right, let's, uh, let's see where we can go. I gave it initially one week. Uh, if I can get just a few things going, I had a few specific tests. If I can figure out how to make this talk to the database and get my active record going and perhaps just render a template and so forth, then uh, I'll be on my merry way. And of course, by the end of that week, I was completely blown away. Ruby was sort of what I'd been waiting for all along. I didn't know it, but Ruby was just that calling in terms of this just feels right. As you listen to David's story, it's hard not to imagine it being some type of movie script or plot to a book. It almost seems as if there is a framework out there that is waiting to bust through him. He has the idea for building something, a convention-based web framework, but he doesn't have the tools to express it. And all of a sudden, cue the music, here comes Ruby. Which, in a way, makes David sort of a passenger here. Someone who the muse is speaking through, if you will. So I asked David directly, would Rails have even happened without Ruby? Do you think you could have made it happen in some other language, for instance? Uh, no. No, I don't think so. I don't think I would have had the interest in sticking with it. Ruby was that spark that really lit the whole thing on fire. And I got really excited pretty quickly. I'd initially spent that week just looking into it and like could this happen and once that let's call it a feasibility study was complete I was completely sold I was like this is it there's I mean why would I go back to anything I'd ever touched before this just feels so incredibly right Ruby's pushing David to complete rails and as David is completing rails well, he's pushed to uh, learn more Ruby It's this positive feedback cycle that, believe it or not, is actually found in nature when giving birth to a child. I asked David that. Did it feel like a birthing process? Absolutely. It was completely uh, a positive feedback cycle there. I would write a little bit of of Ruby just to get going with a piece of framework or or something for Basecamp. all of this framework stuff I was doing wasn't really framework stuff at the time. Like I was trying to get Basecamp done. So... All the framework stuff was, I, I would program just enough to make that screen work, just enough to make that feature tick. Um, and it was really a very need-based uh, development process. Like I wasn't sitting down, let's imagine all the things that people could possibly want if they were building a web application. Yeah, to hell with that. Like I wasn't giving a damn about other people at this point. I was only giving a damn about getting my application done and then getting sucked into to this universe of Ruby where I was just seeing things I'd never seen before. Like code was beautiful in a 
in a completely different way. I was seeing code in a completely different way than I had before. Um, it wasn't that I didn't appreciate programming before, but I more I appreciated sort of the abstract logic of it, if 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 you will. I appreciated the fact that here was this clay you could form in various ways, and you could get amazing applications out of it. But I wasn't appreciating the clay itself. It was more its purpose. The actual code, the process of writing each line of instruction could be pleasurable, could be fascinating, could be intriguing, could be all these wonderful things was was new to me. And all that came from Ruby just being this magical glove for my brain. Um, and it just fit like nothing else had ever fit before when it came to expressing code. does sound like a love story. I mean, it's impossible not to hear the excitement in David's voice even seven years after he created Rails. And I couldn't help but think that when he was writing it, he must have known something. The feelings he had, well, I mean, he's human, right? He must think that other people will have the same feelings. He must have known he was about to hit a home run. So that's what I asked him next. Did you know something big was about to happen? I knew. I knew that I was onto something because in large part because I think I'm not that special. If I'm having this downright revelation about the wonders of programming in Ruby and I'm enjoying Rails uh, equally so, there's going to be somebody else out there who's going to have that same experience. Somebody else out there is going to sit and like, oh, God damn it, I don't want to work on this PHP or Java or C-sharp or whatever project anymore, whatever piece of technology that they were just sick and tired of. And they would have the same experience I had, basically the discovery of Ruby through Rails, and they were going to go, holy shit, this is wonderful. That also led me down a path of like, let's not screw this up. Let's do it right. So... I released Basecamp in February or so, and then I spent another six months or so polishing Rails, polishing Rails in all the ways I felt a lot of all other open source software was never polished before. So I would write documentation, I would think about how the marketing would be, I would think about how to present it to the world, I would think about arguments, I would think about the whole package of trying to uh, introduce this and reach as many people as I possibly could. Because a big part of it was like feeling, if I was going to keep all this to myself, I would be a selfish asshole. I had built all this stuff and everything before it on open source technology. So it was already ingrained to me. It wasn't even a question, oh, should I release this as open source? It was, of course I should release this as open source. You've got the big idea, you dress it up, clean it up, put it out there for everybody to use as open source, and you sit back and watch. 
It's a fascinating process to see something take off and become popular. And I asked David next, as you watched Rails grow, was there ever a moment where you said, wow, I think I think I just hit the big time? I mean, it wasn't like one day, nobody gives a shit. The other day, oh my God, this is all over the place. That wasn't how it happened, which is, of course, never how it happens with anything. Everything looks like an overnight success to to everybody but the people who were actually involved. Um, if you look back at the history of the uptake of Rails, it was actually a pretty slow process. It took years before we had any material traction. Um, it was making a fair amount of noise out from, from the get-go, but it wasn't really gaining any serious traction in the sense of having like thousands of people use it. Although I will say when we had the, I think, second RailsConf, we basically went from, I think like 200 people at the first RailsConf to 600 people to the next one to 1,500 people. When we hit that 1,500 people, it was like, that was, I guess, kind of crazy. That felt like, wow, there's 1,500 people. We have a conference here that's as large as any most any other open source conference on a on a single language or single framework or anything else like that and they're showing up just to to talk about and and learn more about rails that's pretty damn cool i would agree i mean just having a conference in and of itself is quite an achievement but as they say success can be a curse i mean you have this thing you have created this thing you love that you've shepherded along and now other people love it too. A lot of other people love it. What does that mean for you and your vision? When the voices get many and loud, inspiration can drown. The whole reason for doing it, for some people, can just evaporate. That's my next question for David. Do you still feel that excitement? Do you feel the inspiration that you felt before? Are you holding on to that spark? I do. I, I feel... Uh, that the only way that I can make great designs, write great code, is that I have to write it for me. I don't, I'm not good at the writing code for other people part. I, I have to have a personal stake in it. If I don't have a personal stake, I just don't care enough. And if I don't care enough, I'm not going to do great work. And if I'm not going to do great work, why am I bothering? So to me, it was in part a way just to protect my own interest in the project. I was certainly not going to get sucked into working for other people um, because I've seen what happens when, when, when that happens. I've seen lots of open source projects just languish and die because the creator gets sucked into essentially working for other people, fixing their bugs or adding their features, and it's just draining. It's draining when you're doing all this just out of love, out of intellectual curiosity out of all the reasons why you would write open source software. To me, one of those reasons is not just helping complete strangers solve their particular problems. A big part of the uh, feedback, a big part of the good stuff that's coming out of it is solving other people's problems by way of solving my own. That I'm getting all these positive side effects, but they have to remain the side effects. As soon as they become the main attraction, I'm just working for other people or I'm just writing this because I want Rails to be bigger or impress people or convince people, I've lost it. Like that's the day I will 
resign from the whole effort and, and go do something else. That's not why I got into this, uh, this whole thing. So let's fast forward this whole thing about six and a half years after Rails is created uh, up to August of 2010 when Rails 3 was released. Rails 3 is interesting in that it is a joint venture between another Ruby web framework called Merb and David's framework, Rails. The Merb team decided to do its own thing because they had different ideas. They tried to contribute to the Rails effort, but the ideas just weren't ready at the time. Finally, after a while, they decided to come together. So I asked David that next. Given that this is your baby, your vision, you want to hold on to it as tightly as you can. Yet now, here comes the Merb team. How did that go? It wasn't easy. So Rails absolutely started out as that one-man vision. And I kept it like that for long enough to that vision to infect enough people that um, it was their vision too. For the first year and a half, I think, of Rails out in the open, I was the only guy who had commit rights. And I kept the commit rights in large parts because I wanted to ensure the integrity of that vision. I've seen plenty of open source projects being pulled in, in a thousand different ways because you allow collaboration to happen too early before the culture is established enough, before the vision is established enough that you can safely invite other people into the party without them spoiling it. There's the macro view and the uh, micro view of this things. On the macro level, we're all on the same page. We all want the same things. We all subscribe to the same philosophy of what Rails should be. I feel that my role is still to to protect that initial mission. So there's sort of, there's leeway. There's like, you can go do your own thing. If you want to do the work, if you want to do the patch uh, and make the changes, like you get a fair say in how things should work. Like I'm not going to, to argue too much with that unless it interferes with what I think are some of the core tenets of how the system should work or have very strong opinions on, on something in particular. Grow or die, not in the sense of size, but grow in the sense of getting better. Like, is Rails 3 better than Rails 2.3? Yes, by a huge margin in my mind. So as long as we keep making things easier, more consistent, more beautiful, we're good. Rails has been around for about six and a half, seven years now, and... It's kind of interesting because a lot of people still regard it as this young upstart platform, but it's not. It's actually quite mature. And it's sort of interesting to think about the future of Rails. And that was my next question for David. Where's Rails going to be in 10 years? And also, what about you? How is the history book, as small as it is, of the computer science industry, how is history going to look back on David Heinemeyer Hansen? and his home run. I'm generally very wary or wary of predicting the future. When I'm forced to predict the future, I do so by looking at yesterday's weather. What has happened to sort of technologies um, 
of the day that were that are ten years or, or, or older. Ruby, like, Ruby's still around, like, still doing very well. Um, I think the same thing is going to happen with with Rails until something upstage Ruby, until something comes out that feels like a major move forward in language design. Um, I think Ruby and Rails is going to be just fine. I don't think you can out Rails Rails. I don't think you can out Ruby Ruby. You can't just add five percent betterness and then expect that uh, that you're going to beat it. That's not how stuff happens. You have to be, in some ways, orders of magnitude better. I believe that Rails, as a whole package, offered orders of magnitudes improvement. Over what a lot of other people were doing at the time, and that's why it caught on. Regarding the note into history books, I don't, I don't really care. Like to me, I already felt like I made the note in my history book. There will be plenty of history books, and there will be plenty of people looking back at things and seeing them from certain angles. I'm very pleased with the. Contribution I make to things, not the least to to shine light on on Ruby and getting Ruby to be um, just seen in a different light, taken up by a different group of people who had previously taken it up. So I'm very proud of just um, bringing Ruby to the forefront of things. From David Heinemeyer Hansen at loudthinking.com, where he keeps his blog. In addition, he also blogs for 37 Signals at 37signals.com. Finally, if you're interested in David's outlook on business and other things, you can read Rework, which is available at any bookstore you go to. Many, many thanks to David for the interview today. me to talk over this song and fade it out. I'm sorry, I really am, but I know you own the CD. Go put it in and blast it. You might be thinking, why are you fading it out? Well, I kind of have to. Rules of the musical universe. However, it's an apropos song because our next guest, when he hit his home run, well, this song was quite popular. Let's get to it. Had to have a calculator to go to Harvard Business School. And um, that was what I used to do my calculations, but also was in my hand a lot. And it was what I used when I came up with the idea, the general idea for VisiCalc. 
I'm assuming there's going to be a fair number of people in the audience who don't know what VisiCalc is or was. It was the very first spreadsheet. This is Dan Brickland, the guy who invented the spreadsheet. You want to talk about a home run? I'm not sure you can hit one farther out of the park. Scott Hanselman brings us this story from October of 2010. When I was a kid, my brother had basketball players' rookie cards. He'd have the... See, I don't even know basketball players, so I'm like, I was going to bang out a basketball player's name and tell you he had that guy's rookie card. I have no idea of any sports players, so I wouldn't even know what rookie cards he had. But I always thought that there would be computer people rookie cards, right? I would have like the, you know, the H. Edward Roberts creator of the Altair 8080 rookie card. I'll trade you an Adam Osborne and a Bill Gates for uh, a Lee Felsenstein, uh, you know, maker of the Osborne one or, uh, you know, Clive Sinclair. You give me a Sinclair for an Andrew Kay, founder of K-Pro. Oh, really? Okay, I'll trade you a Steve Jobs rookie card for uh, Dan Bricklin. Dan Bricklin is one of those guys. You always hear about these guys like Dan who invented this and invented that. And you think, wow, I wonder if they dropped out of high school. You know, maybe they're one of those kind of geniuses. Nope. Went to MIT, got his MBA from Harvard, got low self-esteem. Dan Bricklin is Superman. Um, what I did was uh, I was thinking, you know, I had seen a mouse. Um, I had seen um, uh, all sorts of different computer stuff. I had been working in word processing before. Uh, when I was at digital, I helped uh, develop some of the early screen-based word processing systems. And um, at school, uh, I, you do your homework, and uh, we put our numbers up on the board. You know, people would uh, call out what, uh, well, here's what I think for this, though, here that the sales will be this and the next year it would be that, et cetera, of what your calculations were. And, um, you know, I sort of imagined word processing with numbers. I sort of said, well, rather than, than writing it and all, why not, you know, use your calculator as a way of typing it in. And there's enough keys there to also type in the text so you could label things. And if I took that calculator and put a ball in the bottom of it, like a mouse, uh, this was in 1978. This was the spring of 1978. And, um, you, know, you know, way before, you know, the, the Mac and stuff like that. And uh, I said, well, imagine that you had a mouse combination with that calculator. And I had a head-up display, like in a fighter plane so that you could see the numbers instead of a screen in front of you. So I could look at people just like I was in class. And you could use the mouse to circle things, to type numbers in. Uh, I didn't have the concept of how to do selection yet, so I just assumed you'd sort of circle it and then push the sum button or something like that to total a column. Um, and that's what that calculator was part of me imagining what uh, the spreadsheet would be. And then later I prototyped uh, the actual spreadsheet and how to make the compromises necessary to end up with what we have today. Comparatively, computers were cramped back then. I mean, think about this. The first Apple II went on sale in June of 1977. 
This is a little processor, a little 6502 running at one megahertz, 4K of RAM. I mean, the video controller was just 24 lines by 40 columns. This is a small computer. My wristwatch has more RAM than this computer, and it was a $2,500 computer. Is this even possible? I mean, VisiCalc is 27,520 bytes long. Even the smallest JPEG on my site, my headshot is bigger than this application in the very first spreadsheet. When you sit down to design something like that, you have to ask yourself, is the thing we want to build feasible? So I asked Dan, did you think this was even possible? Well, well, clearly the ability to add up numbers and stuff like that and to put them on the screen was well known. I mean, it was computerized typesetting and word processing and stuff. So that's not a hard thing. So, the, you know, the concepts were there and, um, you know, I wasn't actually working out the user interface specifically at the time. It was just the general concept of this word processing with numbers and letters and stuff like that up on the screen. Um, and, you know, it's having calculations, automatic recalculation and stuff like that. Um, that's not, you know, uh, coming from uh, a, having seen things like, I guess, Sketchpad and stuff like that uh, and other systems over at MIT and probably the Alto at that point. Uh, you know, that's not something that would be beyond what one could do in the lab or with a lot of money. I'd seen CAD systems and stuff like that. The, the beauty of the actual spreadsheet when we developed it, the electronic spreadsheet as we know it today, was making it simple, work off of a keyboard where you have your fingers a lot, uh, run fast on a very inexpensive machine. That was, um, that was with, with good performance, you know, where it could scroll around and stuff like that. And a lot of that lent it, actually came because of the hardware, the specific hardware that that Apple and uh, some of the other manufacturers have produced. You have to remember back then that business types, accountants and pencil pushers, bean counters, used these ledgers, these big sheets of paper that would be spread across pages of a large ledger or a thing that you would keep your accounting information in. Typewriters were big mechanical things. And, and while there were spreadsheets on mainframes, big batch compilers where you give it input data and you receive output data, this was on large time-sharing machines. The idea of having a spreadsheet at your fingertips that was electronic was a big deal doesn't really seem like an obvious idea. It does seem like a minority report. You know, I visualize numbers in front of me that I can manipulate. How, how does one think about this? What is the inspiration? Well, to me, to, uh, to do word processing with numbers, um, uh, so to speak, uh, was an obvious thing. It, it, but, you know, there, there were a lot of people who were circling this area at the time. The use of the computer for printing out what we call spreadsheets at the time, you know, even at the time they were called spreadsheets, uh, was a common thing. I mean, if you look at the, um, the, the systems that we were using at Harvard that helped us with certain homework problems, it would say print spread sheet question mark. The, um, 
the newsletter for students there was called The Spreadsheet. <laughs> I used spreadsheet paper, though, uh, to do some of my homework. In fact, some of the uh, the prototypes of some of the design documents are on the back of, of, of columnar spreadsheet paper. Uh, so, you know, people were using it to uh, to output columns and rows and stuff. And some people were even figuring out how to do those columns and rows with uh, formulas of various sorts. That was very common in the financial forecasting systems and stuff. But the idea of having individual independent cells where each cell uh, has formatting information uh, and um, calculation information that they're named in a way that um, the computer can uh, understand it with the same way you would understand it, you know, with the A1, B1, C1, etc., um, as opposed to naming it with variable names. Having that interactive where it scrolls around on the screen with uh, locked, um, you know, panes, we call it today, but, you know, we had the ability to lock some areas so you could scroll up and down and still know what the column headers were or the uh, row headers. All of those things together in an interactive way on an inexpensive machine, there don't seem to be others who put all that together that way. One of the hardest things is, what do you leave out? When we thought of the concept of electronic spreadsheet, when Bob and I were prototyping it and we were designing what it would be, we had all these ideas like having a full help system. Some of this was actually in the prototype that I wrote in BASIC. But deciding what you're going to leave in and what you're going to take out, just like in uh, if you're a sculptor who's working with a big piece of stone, I have a picture I use of uh, Michelangelo's David. And, you know, it's what he left because he started with a big piece of stone and removed it. And actually down the hall from the David in Florence, they have uh, some, um, they have some uh, sculptures called, I think, the prisoners or the captives. And they're, they're incomplete. And you see a partial sculpture of a person, but there's still rock around it. He's still removing it. And he's removed rock that was really important in the David, but shouldn't be there for the captive. You have to decide what's the right combination to leave and what's the right combination to get rid of. And that's really hard. But for us, for VisiCalc, we decided here's the things we thought would be the right combination to make a very useful product for being able to do calculations. Do you think it would have been more successful or less successful if you hadn't done those things, if you had too many keystrokes? Could it have been something as simple like that that would have made it not fly? We had a real challenge. The challenge was that the competition was the back of an envelope. The competition was that you would do it by hand first and you'd never have it in our system. That people, you know, they would only use it if they were programming and know they'd do it. They wouldn't use it for, for quick stuff. So I had to make it easy enough to use that you would use it the first time even if you thought that you would only calculate once. And that was a real challenge. I was using my background in developing word processing systems and computerized typesetting systems where the users, the typists uh, in those days, initially, it was before uh, executives would type, 
um, the typists were paid basically by the keystroke. So you were trying to develop applications that were minimal keystroke to do something. And I was of that mindset. So I worked very hard in Visicalc to make it really easy to use so that you would use it even instead of doing it by hand or doing it with a calculator just you know on your head and writing down the result. There were systems that were more keystrokes and they weren't flying. And people really went to this. It was, if you're using something and thinking into it, you really want something that works the way you think and doesn't get in the way. So, um, and I also we tried it. I mean, initially I had it that if you were pointing to something, you'd say something like one plus, and if you wanted to point to B7, you'd have to say you, meaning I want to use, and then you would, then it would go into pointing mode and you could start pointing at something. And that was kind of clunky. And uh, a friend of mine, one of my classmates, uh, John Reese said, well, do you really need the U? Because after one plus, you know that an arrow key can't mean move to the next cell. It must mean point to something because that's an illegal formula. Uh-huh, so tried it. It felt much better. And you'll notice that a lot of what we put in has stayed. Um, so there must be something about it because people did try other things. Right now, with 35 years behind him, Dan Bricklin is living history. But at one point, he was like me and you. But put yourself in his shoes 35 years ago. You're in business school. You had an idea. You start up a company. At what point do you know that you nailed it? That's what I asked Dan. Did he know he just did something awesome? I knew that there were people who thought the idea might be a good idea without seeing the product. Um, I had told some of my professors about it, and um, a few of them uh, that I told about it thought it might be a good idea. Um, one thought it was a good idea because it would allow you to um, do things over a modem where you could share uh, a production planning result at a distance and not have to have everybody fly in to a place that had blackboards that go from room to room to room to be able to do their calculations for production planning. Um, most people didn't get it until they saw it in actual operation, and only if it was useful for their problem, if they were shown it for their problem. I got, when I showed it to some people who did accounting, they would get, you know, they would start shaking and say, well, I, 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 I do that, you know. Like, you know, for it takes me hours and hours every week to do that, and you just did it in 15 minutes. This is like um, salespeople told us how uh, people would push credit cards in their face. So that, I started to realize that hmm, maybe we have something here. I really got it when... I was reading a, an editorial in the Wall Street Journal a few years later, and it was something, I think it was Reagan or something, had just come out with a new budget proposal. And it said that ledger sheets and VisiCalc spreadsheets all over Washington are busy figuring out what this was. And it was, aha, uh -huh. there was a Foxtrot cartoon 
that came out, I guess, around sometime or other, where it you had to know what a spreadsheet was to get the joke. There were things like that that I realized we had come far enough that it was so far that it, it, it did things that we never had seen software do before in terms of acceptance. And then I know I had really made it. When you're developing software, you know, you have to believe that you're building something that might change the world or will sell a lot or is important. Why else will you work so hard, you know? Um, it's, for many people, you really need that drive. You need to believe that uh, you have something special there. You don't want to think that you're going to build something and it'll be thrown away. This has been episode five of This Developer's Life. My name is Rob Connery. And this is Scott Hanselman. Thank you so much for listening. 